0: Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep history alive at the community level. I'm Tara Barrett, ICH researcher with Heritage NL. On today's episode, we hear from Ian Morris and Kevin Toop from the Trinity Historical Society. The Historical Society preserves and promotes the history of Trinity through the acquisition and preservation of artifacts and archives and through the promotion and acquisition of historic properties. The Trinity Historical Society was organized in 1966. Originally the Trinity Historic Sites Committee, it was formed on February 7th, 1964, to gather information on the history of Trinity and to preserve it for future generations. In 1971, it was incorporated under the laws of Newfoundland, and it is a registered charity. Hi, Ian and Kevin, and welcome to the show. Hi, Hi Dora. Thank you for having us. Yes, thanks for having us on. So just to start off, can you give us a little background on what this, the Historical Society is and what, what you do?
1: Uh, Kevin do you want to tackle that or do you want me to do it you go ahead Tara the historical society is intimately involved with the preservation of the history of trinity and uh, intimately related to the promotion of tourism as well because the two are intimately you know quite related Kevin and Kevin and I have been members of the historic society for quite a long time last year or actually in 2018 we became directors in one of the elections of the society and then last year i was elected president and kevin as vice president so we've taken an increasingly uh, active role in the society and this adopt the headstone is one of our newest projects kevin do you want to add to that
2: yes so we've done a few things uh, we started off looking at uh, phases to this project and one of the first things we did was look at the war monument that's uh, located in the churchyard that we're going to uh uh, to fix the headstones up in as well and that was in bad condition and uh, we received a grant from from Veterans Affairs and fundraising we managed to raise enough money to restore it in addition there's 21 names on it from the first and second world war we did research on all 21 names and came up with a story on every one and we have the storyboards around the monument that's now being restored and uh, that was unveiled in November 11th and they're there for people to see and read about these people.
0: You mentioned in the cemetery that you're working on. So, what is the name of the cemetery that you're doing this work in?
2: It's uh, it's St. Paul's Anglican Cemetery, and it surrounds uh, St. Paul's Anglican Church, which is the third church that's been built on that site. So, it's been there for a very long time. It's been used for a couple of hundred, more than a couple hundred years.
0: You talked a little bit about the storyboards and about having some of those stories kind of surrounding the memorial itself. Could you share maybe one or two of those stories that kind of stand out, or or how you went about the research involved in that?
2: Well, Ian and I were in the graveyard one day, and we said, uh, you know, we had seen that monument for a long time, and and it was in bad repair, but we started to wonder about the names, because we didn't know the stories of any of them, even though that some had died not long after we were born, or not long before we were born. So we started doing research, and we were able to track down photographs, and stories, and war records, and we managed to piece together you know, stories of every single one of these young men.
0: And are there yeah. any particular stories that stand out?
2: For these, there are. There's some that stand out. There's one, for example, that was, his name was Harold Hiscock, and he joined the Royal Navy in the Second World War and ended up in the commandos. He was involved in a raid off, uh, off the course of Norway, a successful raid where they sank several German ships, but they were captured. He was sent to a concentration camp. That was in 1943. He remained in, in that concentration camp until just before the war ended. And at that point, him and all the other commandos that were captured with him were executed by the Germans at the concentration camp. And uh, he never did, uh, never did get to come back home.
0: Wow! And Ian, how about you? Is there anything that stood out from doing the research or any of the the stories that you looked up?
1: Well, you know, I, uh, Tara, it's been a very emotional journey. I mean, I don't think Kevin and I are particularly emotional people, but when you read the stories of these young men, I mean, it's just heart wrenching. And as we tracked through this, uh, we learned a lot that we didn't know before. You can actually access, you know, medical records from the First World War and service records. So it was, it was quite. Quite, you know quite informative uh, my great uncle is his name is on the monument and he was actually killed in a motorcycle accident in belgium in the uh, 1916 and uh, you know the circumstances of the accident are very unclear and It was even in my mind, I wondered if it was suicide or if he had been intoxicated or whatever, but you can go back and find these detailed records and it turns out to be absolutely an accident and it was his last day as a motorcycle rider, for example, the very next day. He was to, in the, uh, to become a member of the Royal Flying Corps. So again, you know, all these quirky things of history, and it's just it was just fascinating.
0: And you mentioned a little bit earlier that this is just kind of the first phase of this project. So I guess, how did this project come about and why did you choose to do it in kind of phases? One of the things just mention briefly is that when we work with heritage groups and when we work with heritage organizations, we often like to suggest that you start small and build your way up. So I'm really excited that you guys have kind of phases for this and and a kind of a plan in mind.
1: Kevin, do you mind if I start that? You go ahead, buddy. In 2019, uh, Tara, we organized a concert series at St. Paul's Church to raise some money for special projects in the church, one of which we envisioned would be the headstone restoration. And Kevin and I had recognized for a number of years, you know, that work needed to be done badly on that. Anyway, it turns out the money we raised in 2019, the vestry of the church wanted other more urgent projects done, so the money went to that. But in the course of that, one of the uh, individuals attending, one of the participants, the attendees at the uh, concert came up to me and said, well, why don't you guys do an Adopt the Headstone project? And I said, well, I've never heard of that. You know, tell me more. So the concept, of course, was that we would find descendants of these people and then see if they were interested in helping to restore an individual headstone or just make a a general donation to the restoration of the cemetery. Anyway, 2019, of course, was just before the pandemic, right? The pandemic hit shortly after that and our fundraising was curtailed uh, tremendously. So we thought that it would be better to start with a war monument. That was something we could achieve in the first year and then leave the the remainder of the cemetery to a future phase of the program or of the project. And uh, over the next 12 months or so, you know that uh, consolidated a bit. Uh, Jim Miller at the Society introduced us to Dale Jarvis Dale Jarvis introduced us to uh, um, Robin Lacey, who, as you probably know, is an expert in cemetery preservation. And we've been working with her and she and her husband Ian now have made a site visit. So they've given us estimates on the cost to repair the the most damaged stones. There's about 50 of them that are severely damaged and leaning badly. Uh, So we hope to get that done this spring if we can get adequate fundraising. And then they gave us a an estimate for the remainder of the stones that would be about another hundred and hundred odd stones uh, that we would do once we raise money for that so we've divided into these through three phases. Kevin, you want to add to that?
2: Yeah. Well, the, the, as I said earlier, the church was there and there was a third one on the site. The first one was put there in the 1730s. And of course, the graveyard around it has been used since that particular time. In 1757, they began keeping meticulous burial records in Trinity. And uh, in, uh, in the 110-year period from 1757 to 1767, they recorded more than 2,100 burials in that in that cemetery. And of course, that cemetery was used right up until 1888. So there's Uh, an estimate estimating more than 2500 that are buried in that cemetery and of course that if you bring that down to descendants today a lot of them would have had children and descendants that's uh, you know probably hundreds of thousands of descendants uh, in the world today that come from the people that are buried there of course the stones that are there just about uh, 188 stones that are left and in the 1980s the inscriptions that were visible were recorded by students uh, of the Historical Society, and they recorded all the inscriptions that were visible. And of that, on the, on the 130 or so legible uh, uh, stones, there were about 200 names. Uh, so uh, we've done research on a lot of these names and of course we've we've used ancestry and so on and you can identify easily um, people of course in in the past your ancestors uh, through ancestry but it's not so easy to move forward in ancestry because it only records people that are deceased so that's our process now is how do we get information out to Present day descendants of these, so that might be interested in uh, becoming involved with this project.
1: Tara, just to add to that a little bit, uh, when Kevin and I were researching these names, you know, we took all the names that had been recorded on paper by two summer students in 1993. And then we put them into an Excel spreadsheet. But in the course of doing that, we had to read, of course, the inscriptions of each stone. And, you know, it's a very emotional journey. You almost feel as if you get to know these people, you know, just based on their family history and so forth. So it's been really good.
0: And I guess, what are some of the ways that you're thinking about trying to connect with people who are descendants of those 200 or 188 headstones that are left?
2: Well, uh, we've already, we've written up a, a proposal and a letter outlining what we've done. We've distributed that letter to all members of the Historical Society and also to the Newfoundland Family History Society. They agreed to let us uh, send that letter to all their members, and they have something like uh, nearly 500 members worldwide. And so we've distributed in that way, and of course, as I said, uh, on Ancestry, Ian King to the conclusion that a lot of people have put up family trees and ancestry. And of course, we can contact them. We're going to contact them, let them know what we're doing and uh, whether they can use the, the information that we have to contact people that way as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, Ancestry, Tara, doesn't give you the opportunity to send an email or any contact information, but you, as Kevin said, you can't track forward. You can, you can only track backwards in uh, Ancestry, but there are individuals who have actually posted their family trees. So in general, these are individuals who are interested in genealogy and their living today there is a message place in ancestry where you can actually send these individuals a message and as kevin said you can tell them what we're doing and then you have to rely on them possibly getting back to you you know with their contact information and hopefully a donation i
0: was just going to make a quick note that it's interesting I find cemeteries are such an interesting part of our history and material culture because they kind of fall through the cracks. You know, they're usually dealt with by a church, but then as churches kind of dwindle and families maybe aren't necessarily going to a church anymore, the upkeep becomes kind of maybe oftentimes too much for one church to take on. So I'm really glad to see that the Historical Society is able to kind of take this on and and fundraise for this because with the Heritage Foundation and Heritage NL, we've worked with several different groups and different places about their cemeteries and kind of how they can restore them and look after them. So it's really nice to see. And Robin Lacey and her husband, Ian, are are great. They did a workshop for us in um, Cape Royal, which, well, they did two workshops down there and they, they do really good work. So I'm looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, we've engaged uh, Tara in, you know, we've um, entered into an agreement with them, right? For them to come and do our two phases. And uh, they are just lovely, wonderful people to meet and talk to. The other thing is that this church, of course, the St. Paul's church was built, this third one was built in the 1890s. And it's a huge church. It can hold between 500 and 600 people. So as you can imagine, you know, the maintenance on that sort of building is, is big time. But the congregation has shrunk for 100 years, right? So there are very few people now to maintain that. So the chances of getting the church to be able to fund the cemetery, I think, is
2: remote. The churchyard, too, is pretty special in terms of people that are there, because it wasn't just a Trinity churchyard, because uh, back in, in the 1700s, for example, uh, the uh, one, the ministers that came, one of some of the first ministers that came to Trinity, they weren't just ministers for Trinity. They were ministers for all the communities around Trinity Bay and further north and everywhere. And of course, that piece of ground was one of the only pieces of consecrated ground in the whole area. So people who died in other places were brought there by boat and buried there as well. And of course, there were fishermen from all over the world coming and ships going back and forth from different places and people were having accidents and dying of disease and so on. And they're all buried there. And the people of different denominations, it wasn't just the Church of England or Anglican as well. There were people from different denominations uh, that were buried there. It's interesting because... uh, back in the 1760s, uh, the uh, Anglican or Church of England was the only church. There was a reverend there reverend balfour and he wrote letters back to the society for propagation of the gospel and in one of them he said uh, you know uh, when they start talking about different religions he said they all go to the same church and i bury them all in the same graveyard it's an ecumenical burial ground uh, for a lot of different different people and there's people from all over the world there's references to people there from italy and there's one reference of a musician from martinique being buried there so it's uh so it's pretty special
0: that sounds like it's got quite the history and i you know i've been to Trinity a number of times and I've, I've been both to the graveyard there and inside the church. And it is a, it is a beautiful space and a a lovely place just to visit. Even if, even if you don't have family or you're not from Trinity, it's a, it's a beautiful spot to visit. So with the Adopt a Headstone program, what is your eventual hope? I know you kind of want people to adopt a headstone and kind of help fund the restoration project. Beyond that, kind of what is the goal of the Adopt a Headstone program?
1: It's really important, Tara, to have expert help, you know, when you do this, right? And uh, Robin and Ian have advised us, that we can upright the headstones and there is limited cleaning that you can do on each one. But in fact, if if you do more than that, you can damage the stones and you cannot re-inscribe the stones. You know, that would, that's just not possible. So our goal is to upright them for the most part, uh, clean them and we've already got a map you know a digital map of where people are in the graveyard so we would like to be able to get a qr code on that so when if you for example came in to the churchyard you know you could look up your ancestor and then on your handheld device you could see where in the in the uh, head, you know, the graveyard, the headstones located, and it would also link you with our archives. So then you could look up and find some information about your ancestors. So, so that's the goal with this particular
2: thing. Um, yes, and, and another aspect of that, if we're contacting people out there that have ancestors buried in St. Paul's, and they have information about them, we'd love to have that information, because of course, that would add to our archives as well. So that's, uh, that's very important in that, in that light as well. Some, inter- some interesting, you know, when you think about the stones themselves, we have photographs of taken up that graveyard, one in particular that's pre 1892, because the second church was there in the photograph, and you can see the extent of deterioration that has occurred in a number of headstones that were there then compared to what's there now. And that's like 130 odd years. So what's it going to be like in another 130 years if nothing is done? So we'd like to have it preserved as close to the state it's in now as possible for as long as possible. So that's that's one of the main goals, I guess.
0: No, that sounds wonderful, and the idea of being able to kind of access the archival information, but also if you know if a family member has additional information to be able to provide that to the archives, that sounds like a great kind of back and forth. So that sounds wonderful. So if anybody was interested in the project that you're doing, I know you mentioned you're hoping to get a QR code so you can walk around and see the map. How would people? How do people find out more information about your project about the historical society?
1: Well, uh, Tara, we have a current projects tab that will be on our website so they could go to the trinity historical society website click on new projects and then you would get this uh, document that kevin and i put together explaining it and then telling you how to reach us and how you could send in donations also will be on our facebook page so it'll be on the trinity historical society facebook page kevin is there anywhere else we're going to have this out
2: well, it'll be there. And of course, as I mentioned before, we've already contacted our own members and members of the uh, uh, History Society of Newfoundland as well. And also we're having a ticket sale as well on, a, on an original painting by Ed Roach. And so there's an opportunity for people to uh, uh, to, uh, to donate by buying tickets on that uh, and that pain that's up and coming as well that'll be advertised uh, widely hopefully and we hope to also uh, be putting things on facebook and on our web on a web page when we do a little bit more research for ancestry and we identify some descendants for example we, we may put some out, some things out there saying you know are you related to this particular person and tell the story of that person with the information that we already have and you know that might attract people to as well
1: to, there are a couple of really uh, significant people buried in that churchyard as well. And uh, one of them is Reverend John Clinch. And you may be aware that he actually administered the first vaccination in the New World in Trinity in 1800. Uh, Edward Jenner was his uh, classmate. Jenner, of course, discovered smallpox vaccine and he sent a sample over to Clinch, who vaccinated people here. So that's a very significant story. And John August, uh, one of the uh, Beothics at that time in the late 1700s, he's buried there. He had lived, he was captured and then lived in Trinity for a period of time. And another by the name of Brazel. And uh, we're not certain that he was Beothic. He may have been from Mi'kmaq, but. At any rate, you know, very interesting individuals. Interesting
2: entry on Peter Brazel. He died in 1821 at the age of 49. And Ed, Edmund Hunt, who wrote a book on Trinity, he said in his book, in relation to Peter Brazel, may have been the last male of his kind. But John August was, all, was certainly biotic. He had been captured about 30 years before Clinch came. And when Clinch came, he uh, baptized him. He named John after himself in August after the month he was captured, of course. And, uh, but he, di- he died there a, f- a few years later. But when he was a young man, John August was taken back to England and put on display in a pub in the pool waterfront, and people would come and pay money. After that, he was brought back to, uh, to Trinity and he lived out his life working in the shipbuilding industry there. But he was a biotic and he's buried in the churchyard. Interesting story of that because there's no headstone to him. But Ian and I had a teacher in the 1960s, Stuart Fraser, his name wasn't. He's a friend of ours now, and he's involved with the Historical Society in Holyrood even to this day. And Stuart was involved in the formation of the Historical Society in the beginning. But he told us the story a couple of years ago. Uh, We'd heard about John August and couldn't find the headstone. So we crawled up under St. Paul's church because before that church was built on that site, there were were graves there. And he crawled up under the crawl space underneath St. Paul's church to try and find John August's headstone. He wasn't successful, but he had a lot more nerve than I did than I would have to crawl up there. Maybe we'll get somebody to do that one of those days and see if they can find it.
0: (laughs) I have been in many a church uh, basement and also in Bell Towers, I guess. I know we crawl in underneath a church in Petty Harbor and there were headstones there. So sometimes there are headstones kind of in underneath. So maybe if you bring out Dale, Dale will crawl in anywhere to try and find headstones. So maybe you'll be able to find someone who's, uh, who's got that bravery for you.
1: <laughs> uh, Tara, there's another very tragic story in that graveyard. There are five the children that are buried together, and they were the victims of a house fire. Kevin, when was that, early 1800s? Uh,
2: 1855, they were the children of uh, of Joseph and Mary Day, and uh, the parents were out one evening, and uh, uh, the house caught on fire, and their five children were burned, along with another young man, William Randall, who was there in the house at the time. And the, uh, the headstone that's there to them is in the far end of the churchyard, it needs uprighting. But the whole story of that tragedy is on the headstone. And uh, of course, there's a, a lot of Randalls and days around, uh, around Newfoundland and probably are directly related to, de- directly descended from the parents of and grandparents of these children. It said they were all buried in the same coffin.
0: Wow. That must have been quite the tragedy, both for the family but also for the community.
2: Would have been. It's probably it's the saddest story uh, that I, that I've come across. Uh, people that there's lots of drownings and things of that sort and tragic events, but that's probably the saddest story that's there.
1: Tara, if I could just interrupt again, I, I you know it's really interesting too. I mean, Kevin's family came from an island called Ireland's Eye, which is a few miles from Trinity, and prior to you know the mid to late 1800s, they did not have their own cemetery there. So that meant you had to bring your loved one's remains to Trinity to be buried. Well, you know, that means several miles of travel through Trinity Bay in an open boat. And of course, it had to be done within a few days. So you can just see how important consecrated ground was to people at that time and how important it was to bring your loved ones to that, you know, to that graveyard.
2: They did, yeah. That's my third generation great-grandmother. Her, she was a Bailey from Trinity, and she had married uh, Charles Hodder from Aronsai. I went to live in Aronsai, and her first husband died. And then she married my great-great-great-grandfather, James II. And of course, uh, they're very involved in the church. And, and when he died, he was buried in St. Paul's Churchyard, and she died. She's buried there as well. But also three of their children are buried there as well. And uh, four to five, they all have headstones that are in St. Paul's.
0: Wow, that's quite that's quite the story trying to imagine. I feel like today we're a bit uh, removed from death in a lot of ways. You know, when somebody dies, they go to a funeral home. Generally, the family doesn't have much to do with it. So the thought of kind of uh, taking your own family member by boat so that they could be buried in this consecrated ground is is quite mm-hmm. the story and quite the quite the travel.
2: Quite different Different time. And you have relatives in there as well. They're descendants, they're ancestors. I do,
1: Tara. My well, Kevin and I both grew up in Trinity, right? And then we both went away to pursue our careers through our middle life. And now that we're retired, we're mostly back in Trinity again, right? But my great, great great grandfather and my and his wife my grandmother are buried in that yard and that's in the they were they died in 1861 so they're buried there and their headstone is badly fractured and level on the ground so I'm contributing to get that one you know fixed up and I think a lot of people feel connection with their ancestors in that regard.
2: You find something you find out some things as well that uh, you know in doing the, the research and looking backwards we also found Ian and I are related (laughs) <laughs> because we have a common ancestor you know and i'm
1: also related to kevin's wife
2: well, yeah so, you know, i'm not related to my wife but uh, no but it's just Ian is yeah <laughs> but it's interesting oh, the, you know, the names on the war memorial for example four are from the nearby town of dunfield and because it was a, a war monument for Trinity, Dunfield and Loxon. And my wife is from Dunfield and she's related to all four.
0: Wow. I now the, the war memorial, is that from the First World War or Second or, or is it a monument to you know, anybody who went to war?
2: No,
1: about two thirds of them were from the First World War and then the, the remainder from the Second World War. The monument was erected by the Loyal Orange Lodge uh, back in 1921, and then another piece was added in after the Second World War. And then, when that lodge closed, the monument itself was moved to Saint Paul's Churchyard in the 1960s and has been there since then.
0: And is there anything else about the project or about kind of the historical society that you wanna you wanna share with us today?
2: I'm sure I can tell you a couple of more stories. Some people there probably wouldn't want to be the descend of. <laughs> okay there's a couple of couple in there uh, for example there's one uh, a death that occurred in 1803 where a guy was buried that fell into a fire in a state of intoxication right and died as a result of the fire you know these kinds of things uh. there's another one there that's very interesting uh, the burial of bridget it said bridget was the company keeper of john farrell and was a wife to many so these kinds of stories are there as well you know so there's a lot of different uh, people humorous ones as well there's one there uh, there's a guy there william bugdon and he died in 1808 and uh, when he died his wife uh, ordered the headstone from england for him because all, they were all ordered out there was none of the stone here they're all they're all made of limestone or marble and uh, the, when the ships arrived the next year there was no headstone for william so she reordered the headstone again and when the ships arrived the second year there was a headstone for william all right as a matter of fact there were two So what he did with two, he put one at his head and one at his feet. So William has two headstones, both of which are leaning at the moment, but uh, it's pretty unique to have two headstones in a Newfoundland cemetery.
1: Terry, this, of course, is just one of the number of projects, right, that the Historical Society is um, engaged in. And I I just finished the annual report for this past year. And even though it was a pandemic year, we uh, managed to complete a number of projects. So you can find that on our website. But, you know, when you're retired, this is just fun. You know,
2: It's interesting stuff. And a lot of people do find it interesting, of course, uh, worldwide. There's a huge number of people that are involved in genealogy, and I'm sure... Uh, but contacting them is, uh, is, uh, is our goal and uh, contacting the ones in Trinity Cemetery is, is, is the goal that we have and seeing if they really want to contribute to uh, the work that we're doing.
1: Maybe Tara, it's worth saying that I think what we've learned over the last two and a half years is that you have to proceed cautiously with these uh, restorations and you know, you can do damage rather than do good, right? And uh, you need to plan it and you need to have expert uh, help.
0: I'm, again, I'm glad to hear you say that. I'm looking forward to, yeah, coming out and seeing, seeing the project when it's done.
1: The other interesting thing is how some family names, you know, uh, stay here for centuries and other, other families who seem to have, you know, a large number of children just disappear, you know, and then why they disappeared and where they went. The whole thing is pretty interesting.
2: Population is very migratory, not unlike what's happened here in the last 30 years to, in some communities with, uh, of course, the cod moratorium and people moving away afterwards and so on. There's things that have happened in the past disease that have happened to wiped out certain generations and so on it was it's quite fascinating there's no doubt about
0: that and i guess even just the the first world war wiped out so many young men in the province everywhere so
1: well you know it's it's interesting you would say that because on the on the war monument one of the things that tweaked our interest is there was a guy there named lucas and kevin and i both grew up in trinity in the 1950s and 60s and we don't remember anybody named lucas there were no lucas families here then mm-hmm. And it turns out, of course, that, you know, there were some tragedies at sea, you know, vessels lost and, of course, lost in the First World War. So you're absolutely right. The
2: First World War wiped out some families. Right? Changed the demographics of uh, a lot of communities.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thanks for having us on. We really, yeah. really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you.
0: Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes
0: on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture
1: and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.